0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Ted Griffin, a screenwriter, producer, and director whose credits include Ocean's Eleven, Ridley Scott's Matchstick Man, and 2013's The Wolf of Wall Street. Ted has an encyclopedic knowledge of film history, and in today's conversation, the 50-year-old and I discuss a wide range of topics. From selling his first script at age 27, and the frustrating first few years working in Hollywood as a screenwriter, his creative process writing the now iconic Ocean's Eleven, and what inspired many of the characters and sequences in the film, how meeting Martin Scorsese led them to collaborate on The Key to Reserva, a Hitchcock-inspired short film which I highly recommend you go find online, Ted's favorite memories from the set of The Wolf of Wall Street, all of this and much more. If you enjoy this show, you might wanna hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes from Soundstage Access. Make sure you track us down on Facebook or Twitter to catch a preview of the guests we'll be interviewing this season. Including our next episode with Jenny Bevin, the Oscar-winning costume designer behind Mad Max Fury Road and the upcoming Cruella starring Emma Stone. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Ted... Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Brando, it's it's a pleasure to be here. I wanted to dive in and talk about your early beginnings and the purpose of the spec scripts you were writing early on because you started in Hollywood in the mid-90s, and I know there was kind of an uncertain period graduating from college, you're writing four or five scripts, but you haven't sold any, and then suddenly things just turn around when you find an agent who within a week just sells all three. So I was wondering, looking back now, are you surprised by the kind of screenplays you were writing at the time? And I wonder how did experiencing kind of fast track success at age 29, how did that impact your creativity and plans once you've sold these scripts
1: moving forward? There's a lot to answer there. Certainly it's, it's uh, if I could go back and do things somewhat differently, I would go back and do that. Oh where to start. It was three years uh, out of college of of writing and starving and living out of my car, which is an exaggeration. I I had all my clothes in my car, but I was actually living on people's couches and spare beds and occasionally crashing out in the back of a Mazda. And so when it it did finally happen for me, which all happened probably Within about a fortnight of after rejections and rejections of these two scripts, *Best Laid Plans* and *Ravenous*, finally somebody read it, liked it well enough to give it to his agent and lawyer, and then they became my agent, and lawyer, and suddenly I was doing the the tours as the new boy in town, the new boy writer. And the next year was sort of this fun, careless year of of thinking uh, Hollywood was wonderful and terrific. And then both movies went into production, and I was—I think I was. I just turned 27 when they went into production, and one was a fairly easy production, although I thought everybody who was working on it was the wrong person. That doesn't mean they're bad, it just means you don't hire a certain actor to play a certain role, it doesn't mean they're a bad actor. And then the other movie was was a calamitous production with a, a, a director fired two weeks in and full of strife. Here's the truth of it, is that Besley Plans was really easy to make, but then as soon as I saw the cut, I just thought it sucked. And I didn't know how to wrangle back control because once you sell a script, you're sort of at the mercy. And and I was very young learning how to play the game. And I went into a pretty stark depression after that because I really should have held on to that to direct. It was a great first movie in my mind, at least at the time, in the way that Blood Simple is like a good compact three-person movie for the Coen brothers to start out with. Reservoir Dogs is a good first movie to make because it's sort of five guys in a empty lot with some other stuff. So I'd screwed up, in the words of Tim Matheson in Animal House. I, I fucked up. I trusted some people. So that was a huge disappointment with me. Ravenous, meanwhile, even though it had been this kind of crazy production, and it didn't turn out really what I had in my head, it was kind of interesting enough that I was really proud of it. It did flop, which I got the sense it was going to because... Fox really didn't know how to promote something that was that unusual, and then kind of, I think, gr- aggressively promoted it to fail, conscious or subconsciously, I don't know. But anyway, the, the the fact that both movies flopped wasn't as devastating to me as the guilt of having sort of given up best laid plans and had, and having lost sort of control over that and, and being so disappointed in, in, in how it turned out. And as a consequence of that, I, I, I did s- sort of stop writing for about six months sounds more deliberate. It was like, I just couldn't, I was supposed to write something that I'd sold and I just couldn't get it together. I didn't see the point. Nobody, except for the theme song of Friends ever tells you that your twenties are going to suck as much as they do. And so my late twenties were just, just Hollywood embraced me. And then in a, in mammity bent me over. And then the same thing happened <laughs> again, which was, uh, I kind of climbed out of that hole. I wrote Ocean's Eleven and wrote and produced Matchstick Men and had, a pretty good time on Oceans and a terrific time on Matchstick, and then was ready to direct my first movie and got the rug pulled out for me again, which is a much longer story that needs a bottle of bourbon to go with it. So it's like the Hollywood cycle of uh, riding a motorcycle without brakes. It's, it's like great fun, but you know at some point the crash is going to come.
0: Before I ask you about Ocean's Eleven, I just had one question about ravenous. Yeah. And specifically about your relationship with with story structure. My first quote for today, quote, for me, the biggest influence of Tarantino's work is his willingness ability to start the movie over mid movie, close quote. You spoke about recognizing this technique in movies like Psycho and applying to ravenous when you found yourself stuck with the first draft and trying to figure out how to engineer the movie. So I
1: was wondering what your relationship is with the story structure. It does feel like we're not adventurous enough in the risks we take in storytelling, whether it's the three-act structure or the five-act structure. So I, I, I find things that really mix that up very appealing. I'm trying to think if there's a... A good precedent to Psycho, but just that you follow a character for forty-five minutes and then suddenly she gets killed is such a shocking story turn structurally that it's even a bigger deal than the than the knife attack. Because with Tarantino, it was first was Reservoir Dogs, where you're, I, I guess Tim Roth gets revealed. I'm going to guess at least an hour in that he's the cop. You hold off on that till then. Where. I would say in a, a traditional structure, you'd get that in by the first act, that like that would be the reveal. And then it would just be like letting things play out from that. Because there there is something in storytelling where your greatest fear at any point is that you're boring or confusing. Usually you can figure out if you're if you're being confusing, but if you're being boring, you want to shift it up. And these are the tracks we're on, which is a, a real feat when you, if you can keep sort of a, a linear story fascinating for two hours. That is, that is an achievement. However, that, well, I, in writing Ravenous, I, sort of, I wrote myself into a position where the Guy Pierce character is now stuck out in the woods, alone, injured, and uh, with a cannibalistic killer sort of out there somewhere, somewhere in the woods with him. And I, and I sort of thought, well, I could try to just keep this going for 40 minutes, but that's, it just becomes a bunch of physical stuff. I guess you know, in in a way, there's one because there's one little action piece which is stolen from First Blood, but it's the similar thing of where Rambo gets like chased out of the wilderness, and now he's all the cops are after him out in the in the forest. It's like, well, yeah, you could could kept that movie going probably, just make it a, a a forest battle for a while, but at some point, Richard Krenner comes and I think t- uh, talks him out, and then it becomes a. So they change that up. First Blood's an underrated action movie, by the way.
2: You guys. What do you got against Terry Benedict? What do you have against him? That's the question. He torpedoed my casino, muscled me out. Now he's going to blow it up next month to make way for some gaudy monstrosity. Don't think I don't see what you're doing. What are we doing, Ruben? Steal from Terry Benedict, you better goddamn know. This sort of thing used to be civilized. You'd hit a guy, he'd whack you done. But with Benedict, at the end of this, he better not know you're involved, not know your names or think you're dead because he'll kill you and then he'll go to work on you. That's why we have to be very careful, very precise, mm, well funded. Yeah to be nuts too. And you're going to need a crew as nuts as you are.
0: What do you got in mind? I want to do spend some time talking about Ocean's Eleven because that was a process of adaptation for you Mm -hmm. just for listeners who aren't familiar the original Ocean's Eleven from 1960 stars Frank Sinatra as Danny Ocean and you expressed in the past how you were not really a big fan of the original but that the draft that Warner Brothers brought to you for this soon-to-be remake was trying to be a bit too faithful to the original, which explains by the way, why you wanted to shift the tone of the remake in the direction of films. Like we mentioned The Professionals and The Magnificent Seven, Sturgis movies like The Great Escape, a genre of movies, which I think we could just in general define as men on a mission stories. So you read The Big Con, which is the book that David Ward read while he was writing *The Sting*, and many Damon Renyan, New York stories, which contain whimsical criminals. So I, I just kind of wonder how did that help you discover how to reframe the original story in a new way? And how are you deciding which elements to keep in or remove as you continue to write it?
1: Uh, you did do your research. Yeah, it was a movie that had, had actually uh, been a blind spot for me growing up, and that I watched a lot of movies from that era that were group of guys on a mission movies, and had had never seen that, watched it, and just felt it was lethargic. And I think i sort of turned down the job a couple of times, and then... Uh, then i was driving around listening and i put on the touch of evil soundtrack by uh, henry mancini and i sort of thought oh yeah i get that like guys walking around vegas in suits mm-hmm. the idea that they were amateurs they were army buddies who were just doing this because they can always seemed like weak tea, tea to me because one They all knew each other. Like, it's like, oh, it's a bunch of friends doing something as a lark isn't as interesting to me as a bunch of professionals who have sort of a a shared code, which is true of Great Escape and Magnum Seven and the professionals. And another movie which was comfort food growing up and a big influence on this was, was The Sting. So I think I then just sort of tried to forget about the original movie as much as possible. I knew it had to have 11 protagonists and I knew the main guy had to be called Danny Ocean or else the title made no sense. And then at that point, like if if something informed a decision that Danny has an ex-wife sort of actually came up like late in the day in cracking the story of like, well, that, okay, that is an aspect from the original movie that's useful here.
0: You mentioned that it didn't hit you till page 100 that the movie you're writing was about a guy who's pulling off this heist to show his ex-wife that's loving him. And I think what's interesting about that is that when money as a motivation is just so sterile, I'm sure it's important for you to infuse these kind of character relationships and basic human needs, you know, like love and revenge to set this kind of movie in motion so that it's way more personal than just the heist itself.
1: It is the key thing, I guess, in any movie, obviously, but in a heist movie in particular, because if it's just, we're doing this to get a lot of money, is a fairly empty motivation. If you need to get a lot of money to save the orphanage, that's a different motivation. If you need to get a lot of money in order to win back your wife. Like, I, I, I think Michael Crichton's Great Train Robbery is a really fun heist caper movie. And Sean Connery is pulling off the heist for the money, as he says, but I think you kind of get within that that he enjoys it. It's not entirely work for him. He he takes great pleasure in this. So so it's that joyfulness which I think sort of motivates him. I would even say something with what I would call a reverse heist movie, which is Die Hard. You get a sense that Alan Rickman is doing it to prove himself the smartest guy in town. And and with Tower Heist, which is another heist movie I worked on, that was sort of came my way a few times and. It was originally called, no joke, it was called Trump Heist. And it was the the original conception for the movie was, I think they said, oh, it's going to be like Black Ocean's Eleven, but they all work in Trump's building and they decide to rip off Donald Trump's penthouse. But at the time, this was 12 years ago, 13 years ago that that idea came up, like Donald Trump was not a in the movie, actually, he showed up in the script, one of the scripts I read, he showed up at the end sort of as a, in a do XX machina because he's not the target. He's not the Terry Benedict or the uh, Doyle Lanigan. And I think when I read that, I thought, I don't want, want to work on a movie called Trump Heist. I have no interest in bring that reality into this movie. But also the guys were just ripping off the penthouse because they thought, oh, we can get some, there's a lot of money up there. And it wasn't until, like, Bernie Madoff appeared on the scene that I thought, oh, there's somebody that you can feel motivated to rip off because it's social justice. And that's when I sort of thought, okay, there's there's a heist movie to go and do. Charlie, come on. Look at us. We're basically waiters. That's what we do. We bring people stuff. We don't take things. You and I know the movements of every person. We know the schedules, deliveries, and codes for every door and window. We've been casing the place for over a decade we just didn't know it. We didn't know it because we weren't doing it. But we were. No. Come on, man, I need you. Yeah, you need me
0: because you got these idiots. You think we're getting our money back? You think Lester's getting his money? I talked to the
2: FBI. It's gone. So all this is
1: about getting it back for Lester? Yes, and Rose and Miss Yuvenko and Manuel and you, you jerk. Come on. Let's storm the castle together. Oh, like when they went after Frankenstein. No, it's a different kind of storming. It's a storming where the peasants take everything back, you know, from like the feudal lords and. I'm in. Holy shit, I'm in. Holy shit, I'm in. Well, now we're undefeatable, aren't we? There are a couple others I've sort of turned down over the years, and because, like, there's no reason. Especially with as many heist movies as there are, you need a twist on what the reason is and a twist on okay what how are you pulling off this heist so it's not just not this is not a knock on heat, but the heist of heat is they go in with a lot of guns <laughs> and sort of like, well, there's figure out a new way of doing that anyway,
0: let me ask you about you know the concept of designing the heist again, talking about oceans eleven this is what you had to say about it quote. The two greatest challenges of writing the film were, number one, coming up with a heist that had a twist, the mechanics of which the audience hopefully didn't see coming, and then two, this being Ocean's Eleven, you need 11 characters. Close quote. So we'll talk about the ensemble part in a second, but I was wondering when it comes to heist films, what makes them unique is the process of blending location gadgets and reversals in a way that feels very specific to the geography and the rules of the movie alone. So in the case of Ocean's Eleven, it is the floor for the Bellagio,
1: it's multiple levels. It's, you know- Again, it's it's almost a question of tone. Okay, what kind of heist is this going to be based on what kind of tone of a movie are we making? If we're, if we're making heat, then it is a heist with a lot of guns. But Ocean's Eleven sort of exists in that world in which it's like everything is a little bit of a movie, meaning it's not, we're not an absolute reality. Everybody in, in these casinos are dressed nicely,
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> which is if you've been to Vegas ever, um, it isn't really the case. So it's so it's sort of the fantasy version of, uh, and everybody is a whole lot more handsome than a career con men and criminals would be. And therefore you sort of take enough reality to not break suspension of disbelief but then you also build on sort of the the movie history of okay what are prior heists how do we top those and what is something uh i, I, I this is just sort of like i think the thinking process i went through something that popped up to mind was a 1970s robert aldrich movie called twilight La- twilight's last gleaming which is a die hard in a nuclear silo uh, bert lancaster plays a retired general with two or three sidekicks takes over a basically a, a nuclear silo uh, manages to break in. And it's the sort of thing where he has to take an elevator underground to the controls of that silo. And, and then once he he takes over like half hour in, he holds this silo hostage so that the US government will reveal secrets about why they got into Vietnam. So then you figure out, oh, our bad guy is actually our hero, which is all immaterial to this other than I thought, oh, that's tough. You have to take something that's underground and then you have to get out. What if that, I've never seen that with a vault. And if and, and if we created this fairly credible lie that there's a massive vault under the Bellagio, so it's not only sort of like ripping off a casino, but it's ripping off this other apparatus. That seems pretty difficult to do. And therefore I just have a basic dramatic interest of like, how the hell are they gonna do that? Which is something that I think you always have to think about in terms of, in these movies is, what's your dramatic question? In a James Bond movie, you rarely go in thinking like, is Bond gonna live? Because you kind of know, Bond's gonna live. But you so your question is, how is Bond gonna live? Like, if he is handcuffed and there's a laser coming at his crotch, how's he gonna get out of this one? Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. This is the same, same true of, uh, television now because it's sort of like your character gets into a scrape and you just don't see any way how they're going to get out. You're fascinated by how they're going to. That's the subconscious dramatic question. So in a movie like this, it's like, okay, how are they going to pull that off? Not so much, are they? And so once I sort of figure that out, of course, you got to realize, okay, how am I going to, how are they going to get it out, uh, Get get away with this? And that, I think you either get inspired with something or you sort of finesse it in a way that it just becomes, like you, you make it credible in a, in a way. And what I mean by those is on Oceans, I was literally, I was writing the script and I, and I still didn't know how they were gonna get away with this. And then I thought, oh, SWAT team. And it was like, in a moment, it was like, okay, yeah, I got the shot, they're carrying out the money and, it's, and that all just made sense to me. And I thought, uh, there's some similarities in the sting. They, they bust in looking like FBI agents, but this is, I, I don't think I've seen that before. And with Tower Heist, I realized, okay, here's the problem is they realize they have a car made of gold in a penthouse apartment. How the hell do you steal a car from a penthouse apartment? And it wasn't like, oh, Eureka, but you just go to, okay, what are the tools there? You have a window washing apparatus up top. You build in another apartment that is currently empty that they can move the car into. You have an elevator shaft that you can hide the car in. I didn't write the pool at the end, that they hide it in the pool. That, those are just the pieces that are there. So it's not necessarily huge inspiration, but it's just sort of like, okay, what are the tools I got to use?
0: You enjoy capers. There are multiple con stories throughout your career. And about these kind of stories, you have this to say, quote, you rarely know if someone is lying in life. If you're watching someone being earnest in a scene, then that's all you get, exactly what they're saying. But if you watch someone lie, there's more than one angle. You're simply more engaged, close quote. So when most of these films have a a traditional twist ending, why do you think audiences get a kick out of being conned themselves? That seems to be a rule of the game.
1: I mean, it is a little bit like a magic trick in that there is a great pleasure in watching a magic trick of, okay, how how did they do that? And you have to go back sometimes and think, okay, what was I thinking right when uh, when, when I discovered that twist? How did I feel about it? I sort of feel... The, the twist in Magic Men is a frustration. It's not something that audiences necessarily enjoy. And in the development process, there was a stretch where I tried to get it out of the movie that it was just a straight father-daughter movie because I felt that it would weaken the relationship and make the audience feel like they'd been that like they'd been conned as opposed to fooled, which is a different thing. You're a con man, con artist,
2: flim-flam man, matchstick man, loser, whatever you want to call it. Take your pick.
1: And that guy, Frank.
2: He's my partner. My, um, protege.
1: Teach me something. What? Teach me something. A con.
2: You're funny.
1: No, come on, really. Teach me something.
2: I'm not teaching you anything. Why not? Because you're a bright,
1: innocent, beautiful girl. I'm not going to screw that up like everything else. Believe me, it's no fun doing what I do. A lot of time, it's stealing from people who don't deserve it. Old people, fat people, lonely. A lot of time, I feel sick about it.
0: And then
1: why do you do it? And I'm trying to think of another movie that's, that that leaves me feeling a little empty like that. Certainly any movie where you wake up, where somebody says, oh, it was all a dream. is sort of like, well, what was I watching that for? Like, what was the point? The reason why we have the ending in the carpet store with Nick Cage sort of running into his daughter again is to basically say, no, actually what you were watching, there was a real relationship there. It was under false pretenses, but the emotions were, were real.
0: My last question to you about Ocean's Eleven regards the idea of writing Ensemble. Quote, the tricky part about writing Ocean's Eleven was making all the eleven vital to the heist with their own special skill and moment in the sun while also differentiating them. When it comes to the gimmicks, I learned to turn two characters into one when you're talking about the Malloy brothers. Make one character arguably moot, Yen the Chinese acrobat. Make one British and the other much older. Close quote. So what do you think you learned from writing oceans when it comes to writing a group of colorful criminals compared to other movies you have studied?
1: Uh, that it's not only, the, uh, everything I list there are sort of external factors. So the thing I learned by doing it is like, okay, why is each one participating in this that is unique to them in that Carl Reiner is doing it out of retirement, one last gigs. The Malloy brothers are doing it kind of because they've got like too much energy. <laughs> It's like they they they've got ADD, and so this is the only thing that, like that gives them focus. Don Cheadle is doing it because he wants to work with proper professionals again instead of these douchebags who can't cut the alarm, so that that everybody has something like besides money. They have they're, they're coming at it from some certain angle. Clooney is, is doing it for uh, for love. Pitt's sort of doing it out of boredom and also doing it for Clooney. Damon wants to prove himself at uh, get into the big leagues. You don't you never really get to know the amazing yen well enough but but I guess you know to get out of the circus is motivation enough.
0: You know what kind of blew my mind? I was listening to this interview of yours last night on the on the Candela podcast. And you were talking about the original choices casting wise for the film, what would could have been? Yeah. And it kind of blew my mind to hear that the Malloy brothers were originally offered to Joel Nathan Cohen as their acting debut.
1: Did I mention the the uh, Owen and Luke Wilson? Like, because it was just on the heels of Rushmore. Anyway, so so yes, there there are all sorts of uh, uh, wonder what that would have been like. And I, I think it's fairly public that Alan Arkin was originally cast in the Carl Reiner role. There was. There was a moment where Best Laid Plans was supposed to be Matt Damon and Ben Affleck uh, because one of our producers had done Goodwill Hunting, which had not come out yet, and the studio sort of looked at them and said, "Yeah, we don't think that they're gonna hit." Now, <laughs> doesn't necessarily mean the movie would have been good or successful. It's just sort of like a big part of this is sometimes luck. Even if you're making the decision, it's always helpful to get lucky.
0: Let me quickly ask you about the process of rewriting. Yeah. How is it different to rewrite someone else's script when the film is yet to start shooting compared to when it's in full on production?
1: Well, first of all, rewriting somebody else's script, it's psychologically a little freeing because you can kind of separate the wheat from the chaff and that you think, okay, they did this well, but they didn't do that that well. And, and I, I think I can improve that. And it, as long as you don't get fall down a hole of like being sensitive about that person's feelings and that you sort of have to sell yourself and uh, that this is a job and you're doing it. And the, the client here is the project and not the person you are who you're rewriting. That I think it, it's somewhat a little easier than, say, rewriting yourself, where sometimes you if you read something that's terrible, you wince and you go, God, what a fucking idiot I was two weeks ago. And which is basically the proper process of writing, meaning when you write, you really have to write a draft with the knowledge that future you is going to rewrite you and that that you're gonna go, you know what, this is crap right now, but I gotta get through it because in two weeks I'm gonna hire myself to come and look at this and wince and think I'm an idiot and he'll be right, but that's just what's gonna have to happen. When you're rewriting something that is shooting, whether it's your script or someone else's, there are sometimes helpfully and sometimes not huge constrictions to what you can do because you're you're cast, you have sets built. There's one movie I worked on where they had thrown out the third act, but they had built a set for it. And so they said, we just spent a lot of money on this set. And so we need to devise a third act that takes place in it. And so that was an interesting restriction to, okay, what what are we going to do? It's like, well, no, it's got to be here. And sometimes that's kind of awesome. And there's also something exciting about rewriting sort of on set or something that's in production is because there's a very useful pressure of this is actually going to happen tomorrow. And there's a motivating force of... No, what you write right now, they're going to shoot that. As opposed to when you're writing something speculatively or way out, you know, way out in prep, you're going. There's always like a, you're you're saying to yourself, hopefully they'll they'll shoot this. But now when you're rewriting something on set, it's like no, they're about to shoot this. It focuses the brain to uh, come up with good work, and it feels better doing it that you're not just sort of writing on a wish and a prayer.
0: The last few projects I want to ask you about were also. Well, obviously, we got to talk about the key to Reserva. These are pages, undated, three and a half pages, with another page missing in the middle here. Back in the theater, it says, see that? Yeah. Back in the theater, there's a page missing. We don't know what happened
1: in between. Yes, these these are pages from a Hitchcock film. They're pages from a Hitchcock film? Yeah, but the thing is this, the thing is this, that for whatever reasons, whatever
0: reasons, this key from Reserva was not made.
1: But all that survives of this project are these?
2: That's it, right here.
1: Okay. Right here, you see it. So you're you're no longer just going to imagine it. You're you're going. No, to, we're going to do it. You're going to do we're it. We're
2: going to do it. Yeah, like make my, my own Hitchcock film. But it has to look and has to it has
0: to be, the way he would have made the picture then. Only making it now, but the way he would have made it then.
2: If he was alive now, making this now, he would make it now, as if he made it back then.
1: I understand perfectly.
2: Good, but his film. But his film, not mine,
1: because I couldn't. Your execution of his vision. Absolutely. Okay, three and a half pages of a script developed by Alfred Hitchcock to direct. You don't know what the rest of the script is.
0: No, it's it's one thing to preserve a film that has been made. It's another to preserve a film that has
2: not been made.
1: Again, it it's a it's a tale of like a, a restriction coming into play that was of wonderful use. I'll I'll tell you the slightly longer story because I think you'll like it, which is so I'd met Scorsese once at a dinner we'd gotten uh, along, and then this Spanish sparkling wine basically offered him a good deal of money to go make a short film, whatever he wanted to do, just as long as it had the bottle, that it had sort of a hero shot of the bottle. It had to have that, and it had to sh- have a shot of a couple clinking glasses. Those were the two things that we had to have in the movie. Didn't matter what it was about, anything else. So the first thing I pitched and wrote... Was a short film about Scorsese being approached by a company to recreate his Copacabana shot from *Goodfellas*, the long state camp shot following Leota and Lorraine Bracco into the through the back through the kitchen, in. Mm-hmm. and the shot ends with a bottle of champagne being brought out to them, and Scorsese is sort of like doesn't really want to in this film doesn't want to repeat himself but then they say say here's how much we're paying you and so you cut to and he's back on at that location and this would would have been like 17 years later and they've got all the cars and everything lined up and this is a true uh, actual fact it took eight takes to get the original State of camp shot right and so Scorsese is saying you know maybe hopefully this time we'll get it in one or two and then you uh, watch them and all the things that go into creating a single take, like what has to move. In, in truth, in Goodfellas, they moved extras who were lined up outside for the exterior part of the shot into the restaurant because they didn't have enough extras to fill to do both. So as the camera was moving through this hallway, people were being shuttled through that hallway. Anyway, the, the short film that I wrote for him was then uh, how everything goes wrong with that steady cam shot. And so the short film begins to replicate Goodfellas in Ray Liotta's like coked up day of craziness as you watch Scorsese begin to like get frantic of like how is he going to get the shot because everything keeps on screwing up complete with narration and so it begin the short film begins to copy Goodfellas but not the part that it's trying to copy if that makes any sense whatsoever until they finally get it right and then you pull out and you see that he's watching it with Thelma Schoenmacher and She says something like, well, at least the bottle always hit its mark. Like that was the one one thing that worked always was the bottle. So I wrote that and uh, Marty responded very positively to it. And I flew out to New York to meet with him. And when I got here, he said, let's do something else. Like, I don't want to do something that's that self-referential. And I said, great, what? So we just started talking about movies, which is one of the greatest experiences of my life. It's like going, if you're religious and want to go talk about God with the Pope. And he really is everything you hear about him. He's encyclopedic about movies. He's genius. He's got supersonic hearing, which makes him hypersensitive to any, like, I was once, I spilled some um, pins for like putting index cards into something and I was putting them back in the, in the case. And he said, and I was like, I was clear across the room, just going click, click, click. Anyway, I, I adore him. And so we just talked movies for two or three days. Anyway, and it finally dawned on me of like notorious Hitchcock movie, The MacGuffin, The Bottle. A champagne bottle. And so I suggested, what if we just do like kind of a Hitchcock pastiche? And so I started watching or rewatching. I think there were a couple I hadn't seen. Young and Foolish is a very good early Hitchco- British Hitchcock, which you have never seen it. Most Hitchcocks, are worth watching probably up until but not including Marnie. I hate Marnie but that's another story. Uh, but everything's sort of worth watching but Young and Foolish I hadn't seen. And there's one shot taken that's sort of the reverse of that. The um, the opening shot that starts on the violin in Carnegie Hall and then comes way way back out. It's basically there's a shot in Young, Young and F- Foolish that starts way 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 back and you come in and you go all the way into the eyes of the drummer of this band so it's this long terrific shot anyway so i write this pastiche of hitchcock stuff and we start figuring out okay how do we do this and we realize that i've i've overwritten it and that even with the amount of money this company is giving us like we'll never get all of this in and so we we came up with a lie of what if there's like partial script that we found so we actually don't have to like shoot all of this we just get like the stuff we really want to get and then we kind of can jump forward to like this little button and so that's what begat the mockumentary part of it of me interviewing marty about this latest project and we came up with the lie of these were script pages and it sort of allowed us then to openly steal from hitchcock of like the rot monogram on the handkerchief i mean the the main simon baker's character is obviously roger thornhill but taking pieces from this and that
0: Let me ask you about gone hollywood and, and talking about television in general quote writing tv pilots is a bitch because there's so much to establish while trying to keep your audience from changing the channel once you're writing the series things get a lot more fun because you've lived with the characters a bit you can go deeper and weirder and more interesting than you ever could in a movie close quote so when it comes to your experience as a director i was wondering what was the greatest creative discovery in actually getting to shoot a pilot
1: I had a great time shooting it. I got everything I needed. We had a, a fabulous budget and got to recreate an agency floor. And so I hesitate to say much about it because nobody listening to this will ever get to see it. But it's strange directing a pilot versus directing just an episode of TV because when you come in and watch an episode, you do have kind of a format to follow or a film language if you're shooting something like a handheld. I'm trying. What, what's the like classic example of like a handheld... Friday Night Lights was very handheld, wasn't it? And, and The Shield was always like three cameras moving and, the, and you know just catching things, almost documentary style. Certainly like The Office is, is as a comedy is shot like a documentary as opposed to a 30 rock single camera show where it's sort of like things are a little bit more formal. Same thing with a, a one hour show. You sort of have um, an established style. So you're working within that. And directing a pilot, you're establishing a style, which I think does then get established a little bit more during the first season. From my experience on Terriers, which is a TV show I did 10 years ago, Craig Brewer did a great job on the pilot, and then the next few directors... They were just like, they were still kind of expanding the language of what we could do. I think Ryan Johnson did the fourth episode and sort of allowed us to do like a 70s Zoom, or he put, he put one of those in. And I thought, okay, now we can like, we can do like that's something that we can do in the show because it happened early enough. Whereas I think if you waited till season five and started doing something like really crazy camera wise, some an audience would go what where, where did the hell that come from? We never made it to season five or season two, so that didn't become an issue and directing a pilot is is setting that tone both in what's your camera language, how are you casting it not only in your leads, which is a very much a communal decision between studio executives and and whoever the producers are on, but even like in small roles, all of that is establishing a tone for a show so The decisions on a pilot, in a way, uh, have so many more repercussions, not just in the success or failure of whether the show goes forward, but sort of in uh, how it would go forward if it did. Unfortunately, in my case, it didn't.
0: I will try to begin wrapping things up, and I'm going to do something that I have never done, which is have a fun speed round. Okay. So whatever the first thing comes to mind, what do you think makes for good dialogue when you read it? brevity,
1: clarity, and something that both makes sense and is surprising. And it always helps to like put yourself in the character's skin and then try to imagine, make yourself the most intelligent version of that character and what do they want. Once you take stupidity off the table, It doesn't have to be like Aaron Sorkin, rat-tat-tat, like everybody's being clever. There are so many examples of dialogue where you see a character saying something simply to set up the next person or to do the writer's job of getting information out, or they're not speaking from their point of view. They're a function. And once you can get that function out, you're in a better place.
0: So you've often discussed how coming up with a good idea is often the hardest part. When do you feel like you have enough good ideas and pieces for one story where on an overall level, you're like, okay, I can begin writing this.
1: If I can figure out a half a movie or especially up to like a second act break that I know that work will take care of the rest. There are several ideas that I've had for years and years and years, which are like, oh, that's a really great first act. And then I just don't know what to do with it after that. And I've tried to work it and thought about it. And, oh, you could do that and that. And there's never, there's not been the Eureka. Oh, This is what we do. That's what it is. And therefore, I've never and a couple of them, I thought, okay, I'm just going to start writing and hopefully that thing will come to me. And then 30 pages in. Nope. Which I think I heard somewhere is what happened on Parasite, which is he wrote the first half of the script and said, okay, they've maneuvered their way into the home. Now what? And then he took a year off and he came back and he thought of the man living in the basement. That was a little bit what happened on Ravenous as I was saying that, that I had that got to the point where the guy was trapped out in the woods, what to do. I wasn't sure and then it dawned on me, oh, like get him back to the fort, like do a second movie there that's sort of like a claustrophobic thriller as opposed to a wilderness uh, survival thriller.
0: What is the best and the worst part of having a pitch to a studio?
1: I'm not sure if there's any best part. There's sometimes joy in telling a story to someone, just as there's joy if you've seen if you see a movie and then the next day you're telling your friend, "Oh my god, I saw this movie." And then there's like that's why people do it is because they, there's a joyfulness in being able to tell someone a story, sometimes more joyfulness than hearing it. And then pitching to a studio, there's a great either John Milius or Walter Hill, maybe Paul Schrader or somebody said that the terrible thing about writing screenplays is you're writing for an audience that's going to destroy your work. And somehow, as intelligent as a person might be and how wonderful a human being they might be who becomes a studio executive, once they're in that chair, they become part of the Borg. There's so much pressure and so much weird shit that that it's just they're not a real audience anymore. And therefore, they're a terrible audience to pitch to.
0: And when you do got to apply studio notes, and you know the notes they just gave you are probably going to make the story worse, how do you go about it?
1: It's a learned trait. My first piece of advice is rope-a-dope. Always say, yeah, that's great. Oh, man. And then you, you seem really invested and you say, let me think about that. And then you go away and either you don't do it and they forget about it or they don't forget about it. And then there's a way sometimes of doing it just well enough that they realize it stinks. It's very difficult to say, no, you're wrong and here's why you're wrong. And make a great argument, and then have them, <laughs> and then convince them. Which you thought you would think, oh, in a wonderful universe, that's that's how it works. But because there's uh, one of my early scripts, I'm gonna so, to is not to reveal the project. It's let's say I wrote Psycho, and then I had a director sign up to do it, and the director said, "This is great, I love it. I just want to shoot it exactly the way it is." And I said, "Terrific." And then two weeks later, he said, "I'm wondering when Mrs. Bates kills Marion in the shower." should we maybe kind of see that it's norman and i would have to say well i think the problem with that is that if we see norman there then we know it's norman (laughs) like the rest of the movie is kind of fucked you really yeah like you like and it was one of those moments of like if you don't know that what the fuck are you doing here directing this movie but i kind of said listen you're 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 high. Like, like I, I kind of confronted that. And then we got had a pretty bad relationship from there on, and then he left the project. A little later on in my career, I had a, a movie, I, another one which I won't name the name of, where the director came in with different versions of several scenes which I thought were pretty lousy ideas. Not movie killing like the Norman Bates idea, but just sort of like, well, what if we did this instead? And what I'd learned by then was like, go and write them. And then we, I wrote them, I gave it to him and he said, great, we turned to the studio and the studio said, we like the old version better. So it was like, okay, I got my scenes back. But it was, you learned that the finesse and the direct route is very often not the most successful one.
0: If you could change one thing in the way Hollywood runs things today, what what do you think that would be?
1: To one thing? It's changing so much and is going to continue to change because once the pandemic ends, then there'll be a, a different reality. It's hard to pick one. I mean, because formerly I would have said like so much of the movie business is about marketing and promotion and sort of a great thing about this moment that what I would call the Netflix era is that that's kind of gone away. Like there's I, I don't know what their promotional budget is, is, but it's not the same age of a lot of billboards. And so I don't know what the promotional budget is on every movie, but you can kind of have something out there and you can kind of have it discovered because it's only taking up cyberspace, meaning you don't need to promote it in order to get people into theaters in that first weekend. You can, I'm trying to think of an example here. Uh, my friend did Queen's Gambit, and I'm not sure if I saw any promotion for Queen's Gambit, but it's sort of it's out there, and people say, okay, what's that? And then they're either intrigued by it or not. And also, a movie could sort of live online for a couple of years and then hit, hypothetically. I'm not sure if there's a an example of that yet, but
0: I mean, there's there's plenty of examples because I think Netflix advertises the platform itself rather than specific stuff, and I think that's what you're talking about in regards to movies which were completely undiscovered, but they get rediscovered over a weekend because everyone's watching it.
1: Right, and there's some there's kind of a nice revival aspect of it in that I know when the the GameStop scandal happened, like Wolf of Wall Street peaked. You didn't have to like re-release it and promote it, and I think the pre-branded era will burn itself out to some degrees and that there's so much of the movie industry is taken up by Star Wars, Marvel, DC, or anything that is already branded title. Not to say that those things will go away and that there isn't space for it, but I just think they're taking up so much more room than they ever have before that it is causing a detriment to the culture of of filmmaking or or just the uh, there's there's not that much oxygen there's not there's not that much room for invention it's sort of bad for storytelling which doesn't say that those stories are being told badly though I think most of them are it just is because it's the sameness certainly I feel it of like I don't want to write any of those and therefore I'm not as excited to to be inventive. And certainly if you're, if you're writing something that is already supposed to be a cheeseburger, you're not gonna be that inventive because it's like, yeah, okay, it's a cheeseburger. So I'm looking forward to sort of some of those movies beginning to taper back.
0: What are some of your favorite memories from shooting The Wolf of Wall Street?
1: I will say my favorite uh, memory, which is also sort of instructive, is watching Scorsese at the monitor. And he's always, he's always at the monitor in sort of a video village. And he has a, a car's rearview mirror put on top of the monitor so he can see if anybody's coming to sort of stand behind him. And we were shooting the scene where Leo has taken all the lewds and is at the country club and he can't talk and he has to roll himself down to the car. And Marty's watching this in the monitor and he's laughing out loud, doesn't really care about his getting picked up by the microphone. But he's he's sort of like, he's talking through what's happening, what he's watching as an audience member might. Oh God, he can't, he can't even get to the phone. What is does he get? Oh, he can, no, he's got to roll. Yeah, he's got to roll out. And, and so it's, it's watching this guy who's, you know, had the script now for a few years <laughs> and is also uh, at that point, almost 70, shooting at 2am, full of energy and putting himself in the mind of the audience of like, Here's what's great. Oh, God. And so he's just enjoying himself. And one, he's being an audience to Leo, who's having to do a really not easy scene if you're especially if you're a movie star, is you're looking ridiculous and you're doing physical comedy, which is uh, he doesn't have that much experience with. And so Leo is doing it and he can hear that Marty's having a blast. And it's not like the rest of the crew is going to be off laughing because they're too scared of fucking anything up. So Marty's the only guy who can really make that much noise. So he's motivating a star, which is smart directing. But most of all, he's sort of like, he's watching the movie for us. And that's, it put a smile on my face because it was so much fun hearing him laugh, but it was also instructive of, oh, that's what you're doing at some point as, you, as, as the director. You're being the audience's surrogate, because if you're not getting a kick out of it, why should they? Jordan, you, you didn't try
2: to bribe this fucking FBI agent, did you? No, I didn't try to bribe an FBI agent. You think I'm that fucking stupid? No. What the fuck are you saying? I can't understand. Say that again. I said well, I want to him ride. What the fuck are you saying? I said... Are you fucking high? I can't no I no more FBI. Jordan, are you fucking high? Jordan, do me a favor, stay where you are. Don't get behind the wheel of the car. I'm gonna sit around to pick you up. Jordan, Jordan! After
0: 15 years in storage, the Lemons had developed a delayed fuse. It took 90 minutes for these little fuckers to kick in, but once they did, pow. I mean, I had skipped the tingle phase and went straight to the drool phase. Let me spend the last couple minutes talking about your legacy as a storyteller. Ah, oh,
1: my legacy. This is
0: already a retrospective. We didn't really talk about your grandparents. You know, he was a director and she was an actress, and they were both part of Hollywood history, each have their own star in the Walk of Fame. At what point in your life do you begin to really understand and appreciate their
1: work? Strangely, it was, it was actually late in life. My grandfather was dead before I was born. And my grandmother was alive till I was 11. I knew very much what they did. And and they were talked about a lot in the family. And certainly I credit some of that to my pursuing this. I also pursue my father, who was not their, my mother was their daughter, but my father was just, was a non-pro, as we say in the industry, he just loved movies. And so I credit him quite a bit because he got a VCR right when they came out in 78. So I was watching movies like Crazy then. I was going to the Rialto Theater in South Pasadena, which was a revival theater at the time, back when those things existed. And so I was seeing movies very young that were terrific. So I got a great film education from my dad and sort of this heritage from my mom. And yet, I think I always sort of was a little dismissive of my grandfather's movies. One, because there were a lot of them. He made a hundred and some odd. But they weren't really that available. Then on TCM started up, you, you caught one every once in a while. But I was a little dismissive of them. And then I think in the last f- uh, five or ten years... He's gotten a little bit more critical cachet, thanks to David Kerr, who runs MoMA, who's a, a former film critic. He's actually restored a couple of William A. Sider films, and one of them got into the National Film Registry, a, a Laurel and Hardy movie called Sons of the Desert. So I've I've actually gotten the opportunity to introduce his movies a couple of times. And I can see, especially as I've worked in the industry, I appreciate what he does with light comedy more than I did before it. Before I sort of thought, well, he's just like a lot of 30s, 40s movies. It was kind of static. And there wasn't a he he wasn't Hitchcock moving the camera. He wasn't a signature director. But as I learned to appreciate it a little bit more, I can see where his influence is. And so it's only when I got the youth slapped out of me (laughs) from experience that I've really come around to thinking about appreciating my grandfather's work.
0: I don't want to end on, a, on too big a question, but speaking about legacy, we barely scratched the surface on the variety of your work, and I feel like we spent so much time talking about your writing that I, I also want to highlight all the projects you have also been a producer on and a director on. Mm-hmm. So what is the conversation like with yourself in regards to all the great work you have already produced and all the work you're
1: still looking to produce? It's strange. I, I did not get in the business to be a screenwriter. Uh, I think, like you, I started out writing in order to get into director's chair, and then i I screwed up I gave away the one that i I should have held on to, and then other gigs came like, oh, you can make a lot of money writing this i wasn't <clears throat> wasn't going to direct oceans eleven uh as my first movie, obviously nobody was going to allow me to do that, so you you sort of start getting attracted to the golden handcuffs of of making a lot of cash at it. And then finally, you stick to your guns to direct a movie and you get fired off of it, which is what happened to me, which is, a, as I said, a longer story, which we can talk offline about. So there's looking looking back on what I would like to think is the first half of my career, but I realize is really now probably the first two thirds, meaning it's now been going on for about 25 years. And if I have another 25 years, that means I have John Huston, Ridley Scott longevity. And there aren't that too many of those guys. So I look back on it with a little bit of regret of not being able to do what I actually kind of wanted to do. But I would say that what maybe I was able to accomplish at least or or stick to my guns and trying to accomplish it is uh, doing elevated entertainment in a variety of genres. I I would say big influences for me were both Billy Wilder who managed to do broad comedy with Some Like It Hot and noir with Double Indemnity and sort of character, let's say character comedy with The Apartment and Sunset Boulevard is noir, but also funny. And even even uh, I think an underrated biopic in Spirit of St. Louis uh, is not a movie that people talk a lot about. But anyway, so he was able to sort of like span all these genres, have sort of a like a voice. like You can kind of tell it's a Billy Wilder movie and all those, even though they're wildly different. Same thing with William Wyler, as a director, managed to do a huge range of movies. He didn't write them, but I think they're all kind of, if not the best, the near best versions of their genre. And so at some point, I think, I, I suppose I could have gone down the, the heist road and written Ocean's 12 and Ocean's 13 and Italian Job, uh, the, all jobs that were thrown at me at one time or the other and just like become the, the heist guy but I wanted to try something different every time out, sometimes that's put me in hot water because, you know, if I write a heist movie, somebody will say, well, you're wrong. And I, I can say, oh, well, I wrote Ocean's Eleven. Shut up. Uh, but, <laughs> but if I write a drag comedy and somebody says, you're wrong, I said, well, I wrote Ocean's Eleven. Sh- uh, you know, you don't, you don't have the same credential a- a- at that point. But a- and so Trying to uh, there there's a creative challenge in, in trying to jump between genres and do different things because you kind of have to relearn the wheel each time you can't just kind of keep the same voice and then there's also like the practical problem of you kind of have to prove yourself anew each time out so I guess that's what I uh, is something I tried to do I'm not Billy Wilder or William Wyler but I guess I can look back and say all right well I think I've managed at least to stay to that principle. I haven't been as successful or as prolific as I'd like to be, but there are a lot of people I'm not. I usually say if if I had to take two things sort of with me to heaven of like, here's what I did, I would take keto Reserva at 10 minutes and I would take Terriers at 11 hours. Thank you so much, Ted,
0: for coming on the show. It's been an amazing hour. Uh,
1: You're very welcome. I had a blast and I'm so glad that I've brought you from total ignorance into total knowing of everything you need to know about the industry. (laughs) <laughs> um, in, yeah. in such a short amount of time, it's it's really remarkable what I've achieved here today.
0: And there you have it, folks. Thank you to Ted for calling in to record this episode, and to Eric Boss, who has been such a crucial part of this podcast project and does a kick-ass job mixing all of these conversations. If you enjoy your program, please help us by taking a moment to subscribe to the show and leave a review. Send your favorite episode to a friend to help fellow cinephiles and new listeners find the podcast. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access.